listening to Idea, the podcast about improving data engagement and advocacy. I'm Brianna Wham. And I'm Shannon Sheridan. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Idea, or Improving Data Engagement and Advocacy, or if you're Brianna, Improving Data Advocacy and Engagement. I only made the mistake once, Shannon, (laughs) but apparently I can't spell Idea. We're going to have to think about that. Maybe we'll just have to start going by the subtitle moving forward. (laughs) But rather than talking about our own titling issues, instead today we're here to talk about another paper with a much better title. So today we're going to be having an article review episode. And we're really excited about this one. The article that we're talking about today is Promoting and Enabling Reproducible Data Science Through a Reproducibility Challenge by Jing Lu, Jacob Carlson, Josh Pasek, Brian Pukala, Arvind Rao, and H.V. Jagabish. And we're really excited, as Shannon said, to talk to you about this article today. Not only because it was just recently published about a month ago, but also because it's chock full of content. It's practically a handbook on how and why universities should be supporting reproducibility of research that is conducted at their institution, but also actually how to set up a reproducibility challenge or engagement opportunity like this at your institution. Yeah, it's really great because I feel like sometimes you get one or the other. It's like a very straightforward how-to, or it's a very philosophical discussion about why we should be doing this. And I think you don't see as often people taking both and putting it into one paper. I mean, honestly, this could have been two papers, but uh, that's how much content we've got here for us. Exactly. And I feel like it really does a great job of outlining. Like if I wanted to set this up here at Penn State, they've given me the content to support the why I need funding to do something like this at my institution or why I need support to host something like this challenge, as well as actually how to set it up step by step overall. And one of the things that I think also they did really nicely is they actually explained which I don't think always happens, how they scoped the challenge. Because sometimes you read about these things and it can be kind of vague. You don't really know exactly what the challenge entailed. But in their case, they really scoped what they meant by reproducibility in this case. Um, And they emphasized that they used a functional definition of data science reproducibility. And that two words are really important, data science and reproducibility. Because What they were really looking at was obtaining consistent results in multiple studies conducted independently, using robust scientific measures, rigorous study design and data analysis with transparency in the data, documentation, and code sharing that allows for full confirmation. And that's the definition that came straight from their paper and I think is extremely relevant for those two pieces, both what is reproducibility, but really what is reproducibility in data science? Because it's gonna vary across fields, et cetera. Um, But I think they picked an interesting use case because data science is interdisciplinary. It's using uh, workflows and techniques that can be broadly adopted across many different fields that are computationally intensive. So one of the first things they talked about was how they actually ran this reproducibility challenge on their campus. And this was one of the things that caught my eye when we were looking for an article to review for you all, because we're always interested in engagement opportunities. And even though this could be, you know, you might be wondering, ah, well, it's data science. We're not really talking about libraries specifically. But as they mentioned in the article, there is a lot of room for university-wide support, uh, including libraries in this area. 
And so they talked about how they actually engaged with those researchers. So they set up the challenge. They got 22 submissions. And the way that it worked was they had a panel of judges that reviewed those submissions for reproducibility on four criteria. Uh, first, it was the clarity and thoroughness of the report that the researchers submitted, uh, how it served as a potential example for others to follow, the ease and accuracy with which the results described in the report could be reproduced, and what sort of broader impact the work had towards addressing reproducibility challenges. So this was actually a really big multi-step process because after they received these submissions, they then did a showcase over the course of three months to really promote these submissions uh, and then showed them off at Reproducibility Day and even created an online collection of tools resulting from those submissions. And one thing I thought was really interesting in how they did this and I really liked is they really based their kind of review of the reports and these showcases on those criteria. They explicitly mentioned they didn't uh, define a rubric for these because one of their goals in doing this was also to see what researchers were doing and where they needed more support. And so I think by keeping it broad, it actually allowed them to kind of have that uh, diversity of submissions and be able to actually compare them. I just thought that was an interesting point because I think one of the first things we often do in any kind of showcase competition, things that are being judged is define a rubric. And so I thought that kind of was an interesting uh, perspective for an engagement opportunity. It was, and, and they were very aware of it. They were like, we can't judge because we don't really know what we're going to get. And I really liked the honesty there. Like, and I think that's a good, I think for, for this challenge, that was a good move. Yeah. And to that point, what they did is once they had submissions, they actually developed themes or categories that they felt like those could be grouped in. So in that, they defined five themes of the researchers' actual efforts to improve reproducibility. And they did initially have suggestions for researchers of like what they could be submitting, but then they actually grouped them by these five themes based off of what they were actually seeing. And those themes were uh, definition and quantification of reproducibility, reducing variations in study design, and standardizing initial conditions comprehensive documentation of sharing data, code, and workflow to ensure reproducibility of a specific project, reproducible research with restricted data, and lastly, replication of results in published studies and meta-analysis. And so those five areas, as I said, were the areas they felt that their submissions could be categorized into and were the areas that researchers, at least the researchers that did submit to this showcase, were primarily focusing on reproducibility. And what was interesting is that it was a lot of what they termed actionable reproducibility. Yeah, and Brianna, I think you touched on this earlier and it's worth repeating that one of the things that they were looking for or trying to explore, uh, or at least to find ways that they could then support is where researchers were having issues with creating reproducible research. And so, you know, they did outline their observations in this area and it really kind of boiled down to this idea what of researchers not having those tried and true methods for ensuring reproducibility. But they saw a lot of effort on the part of the researchers in these submissions for where they were trying to achieve that actionable reproducibility. And how they did it was by focusing on the practical aspects of how do we actually make something. So not like high-minded, like this is why reproducible is good, but literally in our project, how do we make it reproducible? 
you know, this, this could be slightly skewed based on the audience because they did submit their papers to a reproducibility challenge. So how much that extrapolates to the research community at large, um, maybe could be up for debate, but I think that makes sense that people are looking for like having the background and the knowledge about why we should be doing something is good. But when it comes to actually doing the research, writing the paper, communicating the results, I think there is a lot of focus on the practical aspects. Like, what do I do? How do I do it? And how can I make sure that others are doing it too? Exactly. And I think from the researcher perspective, being able to see examples even of how other people are implementing reproducible workflows into their research is extremely valuable. Being able to see, okay, I can see how maybe that could be applied to my work. And I, I think that was another thing that they did that was really neat here is they actually uh, have a website, which we will post in the show notes about the presentations from these various examples and information about them so that it actually could be adopted. Because I think sometimes, as you were saying, some of this work is very applied to that specific project and might stay in that specific lab group if there isn't opportunities to be sharing information about how they've implemented something or designed a workflow in their space uh, to actually make it reproducible. This is something we talk a lot about at our institution, which is a, a, a large university, is there are situations where lots of people are trying to figure out how to handle reproducibility with large data, for instance, which a lot of these data science cases are, and each of them are creating unique workflows. And maybe there's a space, which I think this paper touches on really nicely, for universities to play uh, in this role. So one of the things I thought they did really nicely here was they discussed both the role that universities can play and recommendations for how universities can support researchers in making their research reproducible. And so they talked about how uh, universities um, should be support units in this space, um, kind of translating the why and what into the how um, by actually refining the tools the, that are being developed by researchers to be more broadly applicable or be able to be plugged into by other researchers more easily and also sustained, maintained, available. And they kind of mentioned this in the sense of it's not that different from what universities are already doing in some spaces. So. Uh, universities are supporting things like data sharing through repositories and access to data. And so why not have universities also support the sharing and enabling of use of reproducibility tools? Yes. And there was this quote that I absolutely loved, which I think also really tied in nicely for why we're talking about reproducible research on a data management podcast, because it is part of the research lifecycle. And so much of what we do with data management has to do with making research reproducible. And in certain fields, it's going to be more of a workflow system than perhaps a data management question. But I think they're tied really closely together and not only for the researcher, but for how we support them as data professionals. And so I'm gonna read a quote here, so a couple sentences long, but they said, just as data access, data repository, and the support for data curation are becoming indispensable components of the research infrastructure across universities. Tools for reproducing research projects and for effective data and code sharing should also become standard resources for researchers. Just as researchers can often receive consultation for study designs and statistical analyses, consultation for reproducible research should also be available. And I think they kind of hit the nail on the head because you're right, this is another point that funders are being more insistent about 
that universities are more cautious about is, you know, everybody talks about the reproducibility crisis and finding ways to help researchers do that effectively is really key. And so they also in, you know, when discussing this role of universities, the authors also talk about some of their recommendations for how universities can do that. And one of the ones they lead off with is offering consultations to researchers uh, to improve this reproducibility aspect of their research. Uh, so, you know, that would mean that we would need to become more knowledgeable about the tools and being able to review and audit code and other components of the workflow. But I do think that that's a space that we have room to grow into. I think that's exactly right. And I think one of the things that is discussed in this paper, and I think is supported in the space that we all work in, as you mentioned, it's, it does fall into the kind of that data management space, reproducibility, but also researchers have been and continue to, to have that aim to make your research reproducible. But I think one of the things that's highlighted by this article is that researchers are going into a transitioning space, working with more data, working with data with sensitive considerations, having more data requirements from as you said, Shannon, funders and publishers. Um, and also things are kind of, in a lot of fields, becoming more computationally intensive, even in fields that didn't used to do that. And so even researchers that have been practicing reproducible practices are having to learn new workflows. And so having that support, as you mentioned, through consultations is really vital. And it, it kind of leads nicely into one of their other recommendations was that also universities, their data science institutes, if they exist, or other data science related units. Um, it is mentioned kind of briefly in here that uh, sometimes libraries have support for that, um, should coordinate and help to kind of standardize, generalize, validate, and disseminate these methods or tools that researchers are producing so that they can be applied across domains and actually support that truly actionable reproducibility. Um, and I think they talk about this in the article and kind of touches on what I was just talking about is that a lot of researchers know and value reproducibility, but they don't always have the skill set to be developing these tools. It, and they usually would like to adopt one of these tools, but the tools aren't always documented well enough or user friendly enough to be adopted uh, readily into workflows. Yeah, they say that universities have a really great opportunity in this space for doing that through things like training and providing examples and protocols to help these researchers adopt methods and tools that will improve the reproducibility of their research. And, and I think the University of Michigan, like this example, created they created this online collection of tools for their researchers to use that came about from this reproducibility challenge. And you know, there's space and obviously it will take more work and more manpower, but if this is an important point for universities to care about, which I think they make a very compelling argument that it is, that's something that they should be investing in and making more available. And not only making the tools and the people and the assistance available, but also providing some sort of motivation for researchers to adopt these best practices and the tools that work for their research. I, I think we see that a lot with data sharing mandates, publication mandates, like what's the carrot, what's the stick, and figuring out what works at a local institution or in a particular field, I think is gonna be an interesting question to see what actually gets researchers there. Because we can see there's already a group of researchers, you know, for example, those that submitted to this reproducibility challenge, 
who are interested in this space and interested in the question of making their research reproducible. But we all know that that's not every researcher out there. And so figuring out what's going to be the incentive to get everybody or at least get more people on board will be an interesting question. Yeah. And we also know that it takes time to make either these technologies that can support reproducibility in your workflows or actually even just the documentation, it all takes time. And so one of the things I thought was interesting that they even talked about is that the research groups that were involved in the showcase did talk about how, you know, it might have taken them longer to develop this tool, but now that the tool's developed, their workflow is actually quicker because it's developed. So while there is that kind of initial investment, it pays off in the long run. And so I think ties in nicely to one of their other recommendations, which was that there could be an area for support from universities and helping strike that right balance between avoiding that black box where no one else can understand how to use the tool, but also making the tools easy to use by other researchers and easily adopted. Yeah. And so they, they kind of wrapped up on the recommendations point. And if you can tell by our whirlwind tour through the outline of their paper, there was a lot of content in there. And yet some things stuck out, I think, to Brianna and I especially. And one of the things was we wanted more content or, or more specifically, one of the things we both want to know is like, what were the incentives for the reproducibility challenge in and of itself? Because you know, writing those reports takes a lot of effort and they managed to get a pretty decent amount of reports submitted. 22 submissions is really impressive. Like, right? For, for something, something where you like have to this. like write a whole report and do a challenge and, and all that. So and at the beginning of the pandemic too. Yes. Like, yes. It, it, a lot of factors. And I don't know, I'm impressed. But so I want to know, like, what was the communication like? Like, how did they promote this challenge? How did they get the researchers interested in submitting or their incentives? Because I think that would be really helpful for people who might be interested in doing something like this at their own institution. And maybe it's now because we're, what, two years into a pandemic. And I think people are a little tired, a little tired, burned out. And figuring out how to get buy-in for something like this that's not absolutely required and doesn't have any immediate impact for your research or promotion or a tenure packet. I think figuring out ways to engage meaningfully with researchers, why there might not be an obvious benefit to them doing so, would be really helpful information. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think, as you said, just understanding how to get researchers interested because really they got a wealth of information about their researchers and how they're applying reproducibility workflows at University of Michigan. I think most institutions would find having that knowledge so that you can actually then say, okay, here's the areas we really need to be supporting our researchers here is really valuable. Um, and so not only is the showcase itself valuable, but the information they gained from doing it. And so another thing that uh, Shannon and I talked about that we were both interested in understanding is well, University of Michigan is a really large institution. They have their Data Science Center Midas, which is really mature. It has kind of established support systems as well as resources and kind of engagement already with uh, researchers. Um, and so how would you do something like this at a smaller school or a school that doesn't have that kind of setup already where you don't have that data science institutes or groups like that? And in those cases, a university might not be able to provide as much support for kind of actionable reproducibility for the researchers. So if they do want to get involved in this kind of thing, what are the obligations for that institution or where else can they be getting support? Right. I always find that interesting and probably because I went to a small undergraduate institution, shout out to Lycoming College. 
you know, we didn't have a data science center. We had a pretty small library. Uh, you know, the Office of Research wasn't huge. I mean, I think as an undergrad, I probably didn't even know it existed. But, you know, obviously, there's still researchers doing important research at smaller institutions that still have this obligation to creating that reproducible research. But it's also hard because they don't have the same level of support at a place like that compared to like the University of Michigan that has or multiple centers that can support work like this. And I don't think we can answer that question because ethical research is something that I think all researchers aspire to. And so it's like, how do you do that with the resources that you have? And where does the obligation on support staff like, you know, librarians, data curators, data stewards end up and, and how far can one person or one group have to go? And actually one of the things that, that I noticed, or, and maybe I was just hoping that it would be more prominent is that they didn't really focus on libraries and the role that they can play in supporting this kind of institution. I mean, the second author is a librarian and they did mention them as kind of a, a unit on campus where people are sometimes hiring people like reproducibility librarians. And, you know, full disclosure, I'm a librarian, so I'm probably a bit biased, but it would have been nice to see an expanded take on this because I think libraries on campus are very much a hub of research or at least research support, uh, especially at bigger institutions where you have people helping with things like uh, research data management, statistical analysis. I know there's a couple of libraries that I've heard of that like the support for that lives in the library or at least library adjacent. And so it would have been great to emphasize a little bit more how such an interdisciplinary and open center on campus could have played or will play a bigger role in this sort of reproducibility work. Yeah, and I think especially given that there's been a lot of growth in the data science space in libraries. So at least understanding the scope with which uh, libraries can be supporting these kinds of data science efforts would have been, it would have been interesting. But as we mentioned, it was already a paper chock full of information. So maybe that can be their next paper. And so, before we close it out here, we did want to ask a question for you all, our listeners, based off of kind of our thoughts here on how did they get 22 submissions and how did they get researchers excited and engaged in this type of engagement opportunity? How do you entice or incentivize researchers to take part in engagement opportunities like this one? Food is a valid answer. Yeah, so feel free to send us your responses either via our Anchor platform, you can message us directly using the message button, or email us at ideadatapodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in learning more about this article and the work that they did, we've linked the article as well as their research showcase website in our show notes. We look forward to hearing from you all. And uh, I think that's about all for us today. So enjoy the rest of your day. And thanks for joining us on this episode of IDEA. Our theme music is by Scott Holmes. And a big thanks to the Research Data Alliance Interest Group engaging researchers with data for supporting our work. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate or review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time.